Today's uh, scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. This is the reading of God's word. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you not been deceived? Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who, do, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee to search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? John chapter 7 is a story of Jesus being at the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of the Booths. Interestingly, for those of you who know that on the attack of Hamas against Israel on October 7th, that was during the Feast of the Booths and Tabernacles, this time period. And here, Jesus has gone through great lengths in the midst of a lot of people being very much against him and wanting to trap him, especially the Jewish leaders. And so at the end of this chapter, Jesus gives this wonderful invitation. It's an invitation for anyone who is thirsty that his promise is that there will be living water for that soul. And so what I'd like to do is to cover three points from this passage. The first is there is a, a thirst that is required um, for living water in verse 37. And then second, there are some obstacles to this living water. We see this in, also in verse 37, as well as in verses 40 through 52. And then the third is a promise, the promise of living water. And that's in verses 38 through 39. So first we'll look at this thirst for living water in verse 37. I'm gonna read that again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. When Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, the word if, it's a conditional clause. It, uh, it gives us this idea that there's a condition based on it. But here in this instance, it actually has an, a sense of assumption. That is to say that Jesus assumes everyone thirsts. Just like the human body, so too 
every soul thirsts. It's said that the human body can go about 50 to 70 days without food, but approximately only three days without water. Quite a difference. And the assumption is that everyone is going to be thirsty. And the question that remains is not will you be thirsty, but do you realize you are thirsty? I don't know if any of you remember uh, the story of Jonathan Garish and Ellen Chung. On August 15th, 2021, they took their daughter and their dog and they went on a hike in Sierra National Forest. At the beginning point of their hike in the parking lot, it was about 75 degrees, which is relatively comfortable. Because of that, they took one bottle of water, about 85 ounces, and they went on this hike. When they reached the four mile mark, they lost the trail, and at that point, it was 100 degrees. It said that eventually, it got to anywhere from about 106 to 109 degrees, only a few miles later for them. They were all found dead, with only that one bottle of water for the whole family. And some of you might recall the story. There were all sorts of theories as to how they died, why they died, algae bloom or some sort of poisoning or something. But at the end of it all, after all this uh, investigation, they found that essentially they died of dehydration. But they probably were dehydrated in the very beginning of their trek, probably two miles in. And so from the point of dehydration, once they lost their bearings and their sense and wits, they essentially had no hope. I think of their story when I think of Jesus' words in verse 37. That is to say that you can die of thirst and not even realize you are dying of thirst. And spiritually, there are those who know they are dying of thirst. If you are a believer of Christ, you came to the realization that you need him desperately. And so therefore, you could not live without him. In that sense, you are dying of thirst but you knew you were dying of thirst. But everyone is dying of thirst. It's not just Christians, everybody. The problem is that some do not realize that they are dying of thirst, just like these hikers. In verse 37, Jesus is saying, I do not want people to die of thirst. He wants to give you living water. And to the soul dying of thirst, there is nothing like getting a drink of living water. But you have to see this need. You have to realize that you genuinely are thirsty. Again, you might not think you are thirsty. Dehydration happens most often when you are not necessarily thinking you are thirsty. I really like the way preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says this, thirst is a painful need, an emptiness, a salutary warning that something very important is wanted. Thank God for thirst. If you did not have thirst, you would die. Thirst is that warning. It tells your body that you cannot go on. And spiritually speaking, thirst, a spiritual thirst for something more than what you have in this world is a God-given gift and a conviction and a reminder that what you place your hopes and promises in, they're not enough. You need 
to go get your thirst quenched before it is too late. I love the way Laura Hillenbrand describes in the book Unbroken the story of Louis Zamperini, of his account on the lifeboat in the middle of the ocean after his plane had crashed. This is what she says, she writes this, on the third day, without water, a smudge appeared on the horizon. It grew dark and billowed over the rafts and lidded the sun. Down came the rain, the men, and there were a few men on this sort of lifeboat, threw back their heads, spilled their bodies back, spread their arms, opened their mouths. The rain fell on their chests, lips, faces, tongues. It soothed their skin, washed the salt and sweat and fuel from their pores, slid down their throats, fed their bodies. It was a sensory explosion. And that's what Jesus promises in verse 37. But not just in one outpouring of rain, he promises an eternity of living water, so deeply satisfying, so infinitely greater than any food, any vacation, any moment of intimacy or sex, or work, greater than the birth of your child, the time that you were married, a sensory explosion that exceeds anything that could be experienced in this world. That's the promise that Jesus gives of living water. But we have to have that thirst. And there are a couple of obstacles to this thirst, to this promise. The first is what I would call the mirage. The mirage that keeps us from experiencing living water. Imagine you're lost in the Saharan desert on an incredibly hot day, temperatures reaching in the hundreds. You're on the second day without water and you see an oasis. There's a pool of fresh clean water in the middle of this uh, green leafy area, palm trees. And you think it's water, so you run over the sand dunes. You're running headlong with every little last breath and ounce of energy that you have. You finally make it to that pool. You dive your head into the water and you're drinking. But you don't realize that you're drinking just nothing but gritty sand. Because it's a mirage. It's nothing but sand, but you think it's water. And that sand, it doesn't satisfy you. In fact, eventually swallow enough and it will kill you. My friends, this is where we are when we think something else satisfies our thirsty souls rather than Christ. Again, I want you to look at the three verbs that Jesus uses in verse 37. Thirst, come, drink. Those are very intentional by the Lord. He is the only one who provides forever quenching living water. But you must know you are thirsty. So you, are, you thirst. But the thirst is not enough. You have to actually come to him. And then you have to drink. He provides that drink. How often we say to Jesus, Jesus, thanks but no thanks. I think I'll quench my thirst with something else. And so we turn to 
perhaps another person, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We think if we get married, our thirst will be satisfied. Maybe if we turn to a, a career and say, after college, after I do my hard time and be able to get that job and make enough money to buy the house that I've always dreamed of and save for retirement, do all these things. It's always the next step. Once we get there, our thirst will be satisfied. We'll finally be really happy until we're not, until we realize we're still thirsty and maybe we turn to alcohol, drugs, something, anything to satisfy and quench what I long for. Whatever we want in the moment, we are willing to do and believe that whatever we act, whatever we respond to, we believe it will satisfy us. But it is no different than digging our head into the mirage of water, which is nothing but sand. Swallow too long and you will not live. I appreciate how author counselor Paul Tripp describes this heart. He says this, you see it in the whines of a little boy. You see it in the entitlement of the teenager. You see it in the needless argument of the married couple over something unimportant. And you see it in the bitterness of the old man. None of us has escaped this disease. It infects all of our hearts. It is the reason for so much brokenness, angst, and pain of the human community. What is this thing that kidnaps us all? It is the selfishness of sin. The idol of idols really is the idol of self. We make it all about us. We put ourselves in the center of the story. This mirage of self, the Ecclesiastes writer, the teacher, he calls it a vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind. And that keeps us from true, life-giving, soul-satisfying living water. The second obstacle is pride. Pride. Jesus says, or John records for us in verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet? Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come down from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? You could almost hear the size and the dismissive nature of their, their words. The village where David was, so there was a division. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Really, perhaps the greatest impediment to drinking living water is that you don't think you need it at all. Water, what is water but a common drink? Wouldn't you rather have a Coke, juice, maybe a beer, brandy, Something, not water. Water is too common. Who needs it? For the Jewish leaders, they didn't think they needed it at all. They were the most faithful, most obedient people to God. They were closer to him than anyone else. 
They had their obedience to the law. They had their morality. They had their ethics. They had their works. They were good to the poor. They gave of themselves. They memorized scripture. They had everything. Why would they need anything that this commoner taught? This Jesus. If we're not careful, we're not so different from them. You see, they know a lot about God, but they do not know him. You can know about Jesus, but not be born again. You can know a lot about his stories, his words. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can memorize the Bible. You can be a pastor. You can be an elder. You can be a, a Bible teacher. But you don't know Christ. There is a parable that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're both praying in the temple, pretty close to each other, vicinity-wise. And the Pharisee prays, Oh God, I do this for you. I give to the poor. I pay my taxes. I, I know scripture. And I don't sin like that guy over there, that crook, the tax collector. The tax collector prays, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He beats his breast and he just feels as though he is worthless, but he knows that God has accepted him. And Jesus says, and that man, the tax collector, went home justified by God himself. That man knows God. This man knows about God. And the pride that keeps him from knowing God is complete. If you look at this story that we're in today in this text, you see the Jewish leaders, what are they like? They're always questioning Jesus, absolutely skeptical. They assume everything. They assume they know everything. What do they assume about Jesus? They assume that Jesus was born in Nazareth. Nazareth was in the north. Really, as we you might know earlier, it's a place where you know, the hillbillies were. Can anything good or anyone good can come from Nazareth? Bethlehem was the city of kings where David was born in the south. And so they assumed this Jesus, he's from Nazareth. But what they didn't do, if they would have just had the, the humility enough to just simply do a little legwork, maybe to do what Luke and Matthew did, which was to go perhaps knocking on the doors of Bethlehem and say, hey, was there a story about, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna celebrate this story soon coming, you know, about this man named Joseph and Mary, did they come and look for a place to sleep and didn't that, you know, the whole story. Luke and Matthew were willing to actually do the legwork of trying to figure out, is this true? What were the Pharisees like? They assumed everything. That's the pride that they had. It was a laziness and a blindness that was resultant from pride. Are you open to this Jesus? If you're seeking Jesus and you're here and saying, well, I'm interested in knowing about Jesus, but that's it. You're not willing to actually seek, to actually open your heart and to say, show me, Lord, show me in scripture. Ask someone to open the scriptures and study it with them and see, is this Jesus 
for real or not? Is he the savior that he claims to be? Or as C.S. Lewis notes, is he a liar and a lunatic or is he a lord? If you truly are open to the possibility that this Jesus could be the Lord of your life, then test him. And see and know that he will answer you. But if you're not careful, that pride that says, I know all about him. I've heard these stories since I was young. I know everything there is to know about him. Then you're in danger of not being able to drink from the living water. It is very interesting that the person who reads the Bible twice or three times and reads these stories and hears about it eventually says, ah, the Bible's boring, it's just a bunch of stories. But if you talk to someone who's read this book and it's torn because of reading over and over the same stories a thousand times, that person who reads scripture and their Bible is just falling apart, you talk to them and they find God's word a treasure, living water. They can't help but be so delighted and excited to read it. Reading the same story over and over again because they are not trying to know about Jesus. They see that he is the one behind this, these words. And he is the greatest love of all. But to the person who reads it twice and says, I know this stuff already. You can see why they are so shriveled up in their heart, in their soul, so dry, thirsty, but not even realizing it, filled with pride. You can say you want to know him, but your pride, or maybe if we're honest, a pride that leads to laziness keeps us from actually realizing that we are dying of thirst. We are in a dangerous place and we don't realize it. Some of you might have heard the story of Philip Krasik. He was married and a father of two kids. He was an ultra marathoner. You know, those crazy people who run 60 to 100 miles. Forget the 26 miles. They're just pushing the limits. He was an ultra marathoner, avid trail runner on July 10th, a few years ago. He told his wife that he was going on a trail run on the Pleasanton Ridge, be back in an hour. On that particular day in Pleasanton, it was 106 degrees. His body, after a long search, was in, eventually found under a shady tree. And the death, again, was ruled dehydration. I was reading some commentary on this, and Outside Magazine had this to say, and I thought it so applicable to our story, to our passage. The magazine said, athletes are among those most at risk of heat stroke. And research involving marathoners has shown that the fitter you are, the more danger you face. The harder runners push, the more their bodies overheat. And in highly trained athletes and soldiers, the symptoms of going over the line usually aren't obvious. If you hear that, the more gifted, the more athletic, the more in shape, the more talented, the more successful, the more that pride keeps you from seeing that you need water and it can kill you. 
My friends, I have to say this again. We are all dying of thirst, every one of us, everyone. The difference is some of us realize we are dying of thirst and we run to the source of living water. And some of us say, I don't need it. Because you don't need it because like Philip Krasik, you have a very physically healthy body. You are smart, you are talented, you have, you're highly professional, you've gone to the best schools perhaps. You look at your bank account and it's full. You have a, your retirement set up, some of you are retired and you have before you, you can golf all day, and go fishing if you want, do whatever you want. You have a beautiful family, your career is successful, you've earned bonus after bonus, so now's time to finally reap the rewards. Relax. But you are dying. You are the spiritual ultra marathon runner, pushing yourself because you feel like you can. But you are overheating and you do not realize it before it is too late. You do not want, you do not want to stand before a righteous, holy judge and say, I was strong enough, because you're not. None of us are. Jesus promises us living water. And I want you to look with me at this promise in verses 38 through 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit has not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is not an empty promise. Jesus promises that when you believe in him, there's going to be two things that happen. One is your personal soul will be deeply satisfied eternally, forever. You will forever have the source of living water eternally with you. And the promise secondarily is that the Spirit of God who indwells in you is going to be a blessing to all those around you. So there's this double blessing that you receive when you take from the Lord. But I want you to notice that this promise that Jesus gives, it's based actually on God's word itself. Scripture has said, and then there's a quotation, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now that quotation is actually all throughout the Old Testament. It's thought that this quotation actually comes from Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he says this when the people of Israel are coming back from exile, from Babylon. And so as they come back, you know, after being judged, after the 70 years of being in exile, Babylon, Persia, they come back to rebuild Jerusalem. And as they do, he reminds them out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And at that point, it was all about rubble around. So it could be incredibly discouraging. And sources of water, and how do you even get water in a place like that where you have to dig deep in the wells of water? And Nehemiah's promise is God is going to provide that water. But what Nehemiah is doing is he's not just quoting this, he's actually quoting another scripture. So he's saying, this is our God, 
You don't see water around, but the promise is that God will give it to you. And he goes back to quote another scripture. And actually, the original quote comes from when Moses was in the desert with, his, with the people of Israel. Israel has gone through the desert for over almost 40 years, providing for, who knows, anywhere from 100,000 to 1 million people water you can imagine in the desert, that is quite a logistical challenge. And so the people of Israel, as they are so off to do, decide to complain, to grumble. And frankly, I sort of don't blame them. I mean, they're in the middle of the desert. I have a hard time going one day without water or one hour without water. They're maybe going a couple of days without water. And as always the Lord does, he wants to test them. And as they do, they start complaining. And what they don't realize is, you know, you would have never made it this thus far unless God had provided. Do you think God would really let you down after being with you decades in the desert? That's sort of where Moses is. And in fact, God says, I want you to tap the rock. And if you tap this rock, water will flow. Moses, again, you can understand Moses' frustration. He's angry. And so he taps this rock twice. And because of that, he sins against the Lord because probably it was his anger, not just towards the people of Israel, but against God. And because of that sin, Moses who had led them for decades would not be allowed to enter into the promised land. What happens here is that God is saying, I promise you, I will provide for you. I will protect you. But you have to believe me. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is God's heart, is he will always provide, but you have to believe and trust that he will provide for you. That he is the one who satisfies you in a way that nothing else can. Now, when Jesus is quoting all this, the people of Israel, I mean, the people surrounding the Jewish leaders and everyone, they, they understand, they get it, because this is from their story, their history. But what they don't realize is what Jesus is doing is he's actually not just looking backwards, but he's looking forwards to maybe a, a year or two later. And I want you to turn to John chapter 19, verse 34. John chapter 19 verse 34 because living water doesn't flow without a cost but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water when Jesus says out of his heart will flow living water uh, rivers of living water, and there's the promise of the Spirit. But what Jesus knows is that in order for the Spirit to finally quench the parched soul so that it can be a blessing to others, there would have to be an outflow of water. And it's thought that when the Roman soldier, he takes the spear, he's looking up at Jesus who's crucified, he pierces his side, that spear tip, it's thought of, they've done a couple of different medical possibilities as to what could have happened. Is One is that 
by piercing perhaps the lung area that had flooded with water in Jesus' body, or that there had been a rupture in Jesus' heart. And so when uh, water had seeped into his heart, and so when the Roman soldier pushes up, it pierces the heart, and therefore water and blood flows out. I'd like to think that's the story, especially given what Jesus says here in verse 38. If you can imagine, what he is saying is that in order for me and you to be forever fulfilled, never thirsty again, it would take Jesus giving his life for you. It would take Jesus on that cross saying, I thirst so that you would never thirst again. The promise that Jesus gives is this wonderful promise that will never fade eternally. But the cost was so great. And even knowing this to be true, it would not stop him from going to that cross. This is our God. And this is why Philip Bliss writes in the hymn, Hallelujah, what a savior. If you understand the significance of who Jesus is, what he has done, it will cause you to trust him, to believe in him, to live for him. There is no cost or sacrifice so great that we make that in any way could ever repay what Christ has done for us. So he's not looking for you to pay him back. He's looking for you to trust him, to believe that he satisfies you. No husband or wife can do that. No child can do that. No career, no job, no amount of money. Health definitely doesn't. Uh, you, I think some of you know in 20 years from today, you will be meeting the Lord. You might not be here in this place. So there is nothing that you will have that will satisfy you like the living water that Jesus provides. May you know this to be true. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your son, Jesus. Knowing that he would pay this heavy price, that you would give your one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And your promises is that you will provide living water that will well up in our souls. But we have to see, O oh Lord, that we are thirsty and we desperately need you. Like the deer that pants for living water, so may our soul long for you, thirst for you. And you tell us, Lord, that when we are thirsty, that we can come to you and we can drink and we will be revived and refreshed forever and ever. Lord, we are chasing after so many false visions of what it is to satisfy us. May we lay all that down at your feet, O oh Lord, and instead come to see the Savior, the one who has given everything so that we might have life in you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.